You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode 23 of You Play A What. I hope all of you are well. You know, it's been really eye-opening speaking to all my guests uh, over this last 20-odd episodes. I personally have benefited from all of their stories and I want to take this opportunity right now to thank all of you for coming onto the podcast and sharing with all the listeners your experiences and I hope that as a community we can all be proud to call ourselves Singaporean musicians and you know every now and then uh, when you come across a guest that is particularly articulate open to sharing their ideas about the work that we do has an original voice in their artistic output, then my job becomes extra easy. And it feels like there's not enough time. Uh, My guest this week has been an absolute treat to speak to. And I think everyone listening will have much to gain from Emily. On this episode, we talked about her compositional process, the work that she does at the University of Georgia, and the writer's block for composers. Uh, What I particularly enjoyed was how she defined what is encompassed in the job scope of a musician. And I hope that you'll feel likewise. Enough from me now. Please enjoy this episode of You Play A What with Emily. My guest today is a truly remarkable artist. In 2019, she added the Young Artist Award by the National Arts Council of Singapore to her long list of accolades. She is currently the assistant professor at the University of Georgia. But apart from all these things that you can Google about her, I know that she loves a good cook and her favorite color is pink. Welcome to the show, Emily. How are you doing today? Good. So nice to hear you over the internet. (laughs) Yeah, it's my uh, morning voice. So hopefully it warms up a little bit uh, as we go along. Huh? Uh, so yeah. uh, thank you once again for coming out to the podcast, Emily. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. And uh, hopefully uh, your favorite color is indeed pink and uh, Daniel hasn't liked to oh, me. It is. <laughs> it is very, very indeed pink. Right, right. Yeah, so n- nothing like starting off the interview with the wrong fact, right? So just happy that I, I, yeah. I got the right fact in. Uh, so, yeah, you're going to be the first composer that I have on the podcast. So I'm really, really mm-hmm. excited about this. So uh, recently, I saw on your Facebook story that you just unboxed a particular fretless string instrument. Uh, 
So what, ah, what was yes. that all about? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I bought an Erhu right, right. Uh, very, very recently of all places, Amazon. Uh, mm. <laughs> and I, I kind of bought it because uh, I was interested in learning a little bit more about the Erxian. Mm. which is a Teochew kind of a Hutin family instrument. Uh, and, and part of this is because uh, I'm, I'm digging into a lot of uh, Teochew opera and also Xian Shi music uh, that I think is going to play a rather large part in an upcoming opera of mine mm. uh, that is due to premiere in 2023. So I'm doing a lot of research about different kinds of operas and I'm starting with the opera that means the most to me because I'm Teochew mm. um, and then working my way out from that. Uh, so yeah, I, I bought the um, Erhu because it's the closest thing to an Erxian that I can find to learn a little bit more about ornamentation, uh, ornamenting you know melodies in, in that style. So yeah, you know it's a beginning of a new research project, I guess. I see. And uh, this new uh, premiere that you're going to have in 2023, is it going to be uh, in the US or is it going to be here in Singapore? Well, I hope to bring it to Singapore at some point, but right now it's planned to be in uh, Boston and New York first. Okay. And we'll see where it expands to from there, but very, very hoping for it to be in Singapore in the near future as well. Yeah, you, you seem to have a very particular um, thing about making the Americans learn Teochew, right? Because there's also another vocal piece that uh, has some Teochew text inside that you've written a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that piece I think you're thinking about is called Naku Niku. Yes. It's for a 16-piece uh, choir mm. that I got the New York Virtuoso Singers to uh, sing, or rather they commissioned it and then they got to sing this piece that has Teochew text in it. So yeah, I think, you know, sharing culture and my love for my, you know, I, I would say mother tongue really mm. uh, with everyone else that's here because it's not really a um, dialect that you hear a lot in the US. I think yeah. the most common dialect we hear here is um, Cantonese. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. You know. So how, how was the, the process for you when you were trying to convey certain kind of like inflections of like Teochew to the American singers? Was it difficult for them to, to grasp this uh, sort of like almost sing-songy kind of approach to the Teochew language? Yeah, I don't know how difficult it was for them because I actually didn't really ask about that. Mm. Uh, but I, I can guess that it's probably not easy because uh, even with all the things I wrote on the score, in the end, I had to record myself uh, speaking the Teochew words so that they can actually hear what it sounds like from someone who speaks it rather than from the notation that I gave in the score. Mm. Yeah, and you know the funny thing about... Uh, text usually is that it all can be notated well using IPA mm -hmm. but with Teochew and a lot of these uh, slightly tonal dialects and languages uh, I'm finding that IPA actually doesn't really help so I need to find a better way to you know portray these inflections in the music. Mm, I see you know I'm also a Teochew but Unfortunately, my uh, Teochew speaking level is not quite there. I think, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I, I was gonna suggest that we do this uh, podcast in Teochew instead. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that will last about thirty seconds. So you know, <laughs> that that will go uh, quite well. I guess. Yeah, but I, mm -hmm. I I hang my my head in shame. 
for my lack oh. of understanding or knowledge of the Teochew language. It, it's really strange in my household because my dad is a Teochew, my mom's Hokkien, but mm-hmm. yeah, at home, everybody speaks Hokkien. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a strange thing, right? Um, but every now and then when the relative side of uh, or my father's uh, siblings come over, my uncles and aunties, then they all speak uh, Teochew and then I get to hear a little bit of that. Yeah, but otherwise, you know, very, very little. Although I am a Teochew. I see. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Atlanta, where you are living at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. So actually, this is uh, Atlanta is quite a special place for me because it's actually the first place that I traveled to by myself, alone. So uh, I was uh, 18 years old back then. I traveled to Atlanta for this Tuba Euphonium uh, Summer Festival held in uh, Emory University. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So this was a, a, a while ago now. So, uh, how long have you been uh, living at Atlanta? Uh, this is the beginning of my fourth year teaching at UGA. Hmm. So, that will be about three years and a few months, I guess, living in Atlanta. Hmm. Uh, or actually, that's not true because when I first got the job, I lived in Athens, uh, which is the university town the university is in. Hmm. Uh, but me and my husband moved to Atlanta uh, a year after that because... Uh, you know, he found a job in Atlanta and Atlanta has a lot more diversity and obviously it's a bigger city. So I'm much closer to the airport, which helps a lot back in the day when we could travel. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so for all those reasons, I've been in Atlanta for maybe about two and a half years now. I see. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I actually live really, really close by to Emory University. So if you come back for the Tuba Euphonium Festival, yeah. let me know. Sure, sure. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, actually, the the Atlanta airport is like a, a hub for all the Delta flights, isn't it? There's like this huge uh, fleet of uh, Delta airplanes over there. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So an uh, interesting thing about my, my flight to Georgia is that um, because it was also my first time traveling, right? So I have absolutely no clue about the the in and outs of uh, air travel in the US. So I had to take uh, from Singapore, I went to Hong Kong, and then from Hong Kong, I took a flight all the way to Chicago. And uh, throughout the flight, it was a really old plane. I took United, and it's a really old plane, so we didn't mm-hmm. have our own entertainment system, actually. So it was one of those shared entertainment system where like two rows looked at a single monitor and they were just like showing documentaries <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. So actually it turns out that I uh, was late for my flight from Chicago to Georgia. But uh, oh. what also happens quite often maybe is that the domestic flights are quite easily uh, delayed. Yeah, yeah. So I actually managed to true. yeah catch my flight to Georgia. But yeah. So everything was late, right? So I, I reached the, uh, the airport. I reached Georgia. And then someone was supposed to pick me up to uh, drop me off at the university. But of course, because the flight was delayed, so uh, he went off first to do some of his own things before he, uh, instead of just waiting at the airport for me, uh, which is mm-hmm. understandable. Yeah, so I, I reached there. Actually, I realized that my, my phone was not really working. And then I panicked right. for a moment. So I had to go to the car rental and uh, ask them, uh, can you help me like ring up this number so that I can like, ask somebody to pick me up from the airport so yeah that was quite yeah. quite an experience definitely 
Right. Yeah. And that sounds like the days before free Wi-Fi at airports too, right? Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness, how did we survive those days? Exactly, exactly. Now I think back and I was like, yeah, I don't know how I did it. Yeah. So back when you had to carry a book around, I guess, you know, now not so much. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another interesting thing, uh, when I was in Atlanta, I also went to this uh, burger joint. Not sure if they're still around, called the Vortex. Yes, I think it is still around. I think the Vortex is actually uh, like a landmark and the, the burger joint is inside the Vortex. Yeah, yeah. It's this like really, really uh, interesting looking kind of like restaurant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's in a little five points in a very strange part of, uh, at- no, not strange. I just like eccentric part of Atlanta. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, still there. Yeah, cool. So uh, actually, I, I went there before I realized it got like featured on some like TV shows as well. So yeah, I was just uh-huh. asking uh, one of the the students at the university, like, oh, could you like just bring me out to like eat something nice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of staying uh, and eating like pizzas every day uh, because that's what they yeah. catered in for us uh, during the um, festival. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what Americans eat all the time: pizzas right. and burgers. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Hardly and, uh, any delicious food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, and uh, I hear that you are also um, growing some of your own foods in your garden. Mm-hmm. Has that been kind of like wiped out by the recent storm, or is it kind of still going? Uh, I would say it's probably wiped out, but not because of the recent storm, but because it's a little bit, you know, cold right now. Mm. So the growing season is mostly over. So whatever is left is just like waiting to ripen. Like I have some tomatoes uh, Ah. left waiting to ripen. Okay. And some jalapeno and bell peppers that are still on the vine, but... I don't think anything is really growing in the same sense as it would be growing in the spring or the summer anymore. Mm. So they're just trying to, you know, fully ripen and then they're done. I see. For the year. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, recently during the perhaps a lockdown period or the circuit breaker period here in Singapore, uh, you started uh, or you did three videos uh, of your Hangry Eats series. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I find that really interesting, particularly the, the kimchi quesadilla one, uh, because the music ah. uh, is it has a kind of like in uh, intensity and slightly sinister. <laughs> and every moment when you pick up the knife, I feel like what is going to happen here? I feel like, you know, <laughs> perhaps we are at a, at a scene of a, a, a horror movie or something like that. So what was the, the thought process behind like starting this um, particular series? Oh, yeah. So I think this was pretty early during the lockdown, probably in April, uh, where we were all just like shocked. Like for me, I was really shell shocked because it was my semester of only wearing one hat, which is a composer hat. Mm. Right. Um, I, I had a fellowship that allowed me to not teach for a semester. So I had all performances lined up, you know, all through the spring year and the summer and all of that got instantly cancelled like 20 mm. something almost 30 events cancelled so I was very shell-shocked I haven't you know really planned on composing because I was supposed to be 
all over the place, traveling, going to concerts, um, performances of my works, and also giving talks at universities. So mm. suddenly all of that was COVID cancelled. Um, so I decided like, yeah, you know, we need to do something. What makes me the most happy mm. uh, other than music? And for me, that's eating, right? right. So I, I'm a big, big, big foodie. I cook a lot. Mm. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy eating. Yeah. And so I decided, I decided to... Um, you know, put the two things I love the most together in a way that is, I guess, 2020 uh, style. Mm. <laughs> so it's pretty janky, right? It's yeah. pretty janky in that uh, it's nothing fancy. It's just a video of me cooking in my kitchen. Mm. And I added um, other composers' musics to the soundscape of the kitchen because I felt like it. So that was, you know, my motivator in that, like, I just wanted to do things that makes me happy in a time where everything was, or everything seemed to go wrong. Mm, so see. that was the impetus. And, you know, eventually I gave myself a little bit more structure in that, um, you know, it's the, the later videos are a little bit more edited and not as just rough on the edges. But I think the first one was really quite fun, mm. even though it was the longest one, because uh, I really just wanted to play with some sort of a storytelling. Right. So the first one, the first Hangry Hears was uh, about the kimchi quesadilla, and I stole music from my friend Jen Jolly mm -hmm. um, as a you know track that I cut up and edited into the kitchen soundscape. So I was telling the story of uh, this like, Basically, every time the kimchi comes in, it overtakes everyone else. Right. So when the kimchi comes in, it's always very, very dramatic. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, personifying my microwave, for example, when the microwave is on, it's the same pitch as the orchestra playing that B. So it's like, oh yeah, I know it works perfectly well. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. 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 Definitely, I think that the sense of drama for sure is is there with the uh, yeah with the uh, graphics. And the and the music and the kitchen mm -hmm. sounds sort of all interplaying together with each other. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed yeah. that. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, interesting that you also mentioned that since the beginning of the year, there's been a bunch of cancellations, right? And yeah, uh, you wrote a, a very um, passionate post on Facebook, uh, speaking about how you felt about uh, cancellation. And this sort mm -hmm. of, we, the whole industry, perhaps not everybody is uh, pivoting into something that is perhaps more sustainable uh, in the long run, but we are just kind of waiting it out, right? So, uh, right. I, and I would like to quote you here, and you said that uh, we cannot just twiddle our thumbs and wait for the day we can go back to the same old ways again. This is not how an artist or creative community works. We adapt, we change, we try new things, we work and we reinvent. In doing so, we stay relevant. Sometimes we feel spectacularly, but maybe, just maybe, we will discover new paths to similar goals. And I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, what, what you just said. Yeah. And I think it's uh, super important as well. I mean, of course, in Singapore, we are a little bit more fortunate in terms of managing this uh, whole pandemic situation. And also, it's generally a little bit hotter here. So people don't congregate indoors and all this kind of stuff. But I think in general... Um, this process of us moving to something that is uh, newer or uh, a different way of presenting our art form, it has been a long time coming, just that this whole pandemic has really pushed us to try to innovate, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think as artists, uh, especially now, I feel, you know, we 
feel like we always have to, you know, uphold history for whatever reason. But it doesn't, it, it wasn't really the case, I think, before, because right now we have all ways to document uh, what we're doing. So we feel like there's this responsibility almost to document things that we previously couldn't have documented mm. uh, in, you know, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So I think because of this, um, there is more of an even spread between what we're doing contemporary-wise and what we had to do in, in the past. Yeah. Um, so maybe by editing and you know keeping ourselves up to date with what's happening in future and now that we you know live more in the present and that's kind of my hope going forward because how many times do you need to record the beethoven eroica exactly like yeah yeah <laughs> because it's already I'm, I'm it's sorry. already been done it's already been done isn't it uh, if you want to find a recording of the uh, eroica easy yeah. Anywhere, Spotify, yeah. Nexus, wherever. There's tons of recording of that. Right, and it's been done. Not just done. It's been done so many times, yeah. and so many of it is great. Yeah. 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 So maybe instead of reinventing the past, why don't we continue reinventing the present and the future, so that we actually stay relatable to you know ourselves. Mm. I agree. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, this is a, perhaps a, a completely different topic altogether. But how much of it do you think is down to, say, the systems of music schools is still quite traditional in a sense that the model of how students are being um, assessed or judged in uh, or the modules they have to take in schools more or less hasn't changed as much since, say, like the 18 to the 1900s when music conservatory yeah. was a thing right so i right. yeah so i think like in the past perhaps there was li really a need for students to perhaps learn these works because this was the music that they were playing and you needed proficient musicians to turn up let's say for a sub uh, in a orchestra or to win an orchestra job but right now the the landscape sort of like changed a little bit isn't it um that it is mm -hmm. not completely about this anymore and however, the, the whole system is still kind of um, not moved on a little bit. And, and, yeah. Yeah, and that we are still teaching students to do the exact same thing, right? You play the symphonies, you play accurately, you read the music, and then that's it. Uh, in terms of creativity and finding your own voice, not so much. Right. I think, you know, a lot of it is education. Mm. Um, and I think part of it is also because for so many years, uh, things have not changed. And because of that, people are uncomfortable to change. Mm. But I would, I would also like to add that I don't think every single school is like that. Yeah. For example, I think YST has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I really applaud what they're doing. And at my school also, we are definitely looking at uh, diversifying mm. uh, our curriculum and also, you know, bringing in other aspects of music making that seems to have been forgotten, right? Like, for example, um, we used to collaborate a lot. Like, um, you know, you, you always hear like composers will 
write music for this person, this particular uh, famous violinist or something. I feel like, you know, we don't really encourage a lot of these collaborations generally okay. in programs. And so I think, you know, we're bringing that back. Mm. Uh, also in introducing other kinds of music, not just classical concert music into the curriculum is definitely something that I think is very important. And I'm starting to see many schools do that. Mm. So, you know, talking about hip hop, talking about country music, um, world musics, all of these things that I think weren't quite as common in, uh, I would say, undergraduate curricula is now starting to be something that uh, is talked about more and taught a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's great. Yeah, it's if not, it's just it all gets a bit one-dimensional. I think if everyone, mm -hmm. yeah, comes out from the uh, your your studies and then you are just everyone does the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then it, it gets a little bit like yeah. boring, if I can say that. Yeah, <laughs> I I totally agree with you because um I don't know I find the way I work a little bit different maybe so I'm, I'm a composer as you have said but I also play bass mm. a lot uh, and I think it's one part of me that I never really gave up even though I didn't really major in it mm. like I've you know I play bass a lot and I continue playing bass even though none of my degrees actually say I play bass right uh, and I think that's one aspect of being a musician that is a bit lost mm. like everyone is so siloed into what their main thing is um, that they maybe forget that being a musician doesn't mean you can only focus on one thing yeah right if you're a composer you should play an instrument you should sing mm. uh, you can also you know do other things like conduct or arts manage or anything like that like being, being a musician is about wearing many many hats i think it gives you a more holistic view of uh the artistic create artistic community as a whole mm. and i think it's a very important thing to you know keep your feet wet in different aspects of the uh, art form for sure for sure right? yeah yeah great advice yeah. really 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 great advice i th think yeah absolutely um unless you are so 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 damn good at an instrument and i'm talking like really really uh you tour the world with the instrument uh we really mm -hmm. i think need to um get our hands into all these different aspects of our work not just you know mm -hmm. yeah i play this one particular instrument and particularly if you're a phonium player don't ever dream of that because you have to do <laughs> a little bit more yeah either another instrument or yeah you know or like me yeah. talk to people or host yes. a podcast yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so um great and yeah what what a lovely uh, absolutely lovely start to this interview and the conversation now why don't you share with us a little bit about uh, your whole musical journey and career so far and how you got started mm -hmm. and how do you uh, arrive at where you are today I, mean, I think that will be a very long conversation, but let me just try. Right. Uh, so I, I was forced into learning music when I was a younger kid. I think when I was maybe five or six, mm. when I was brought to Yamaha and started learning keyboard. And I really, really, really hated it because eventually I transitioned to piano lessons and I had rather abusive piano teachers, if I can say that. Uh, you know, just, you know, okay. very, I would say physically violent. Wow. In that when you don't practice, they really like slap your hand or slam the piano lid down on your fingers. And mm -hmm. 
that was something I remember when I was a kid and I was actually rather traumatized mm. uh, by lessons. Right. So I didn't like playing the piano, but I don't remember exactly why. Oh, actually, I do. La. Mm. Um, when I was in SEC 1, there was a CCA uh, exhibition showcase mm -hmm. for you to pick which CCA you want. And in my head, I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to go to join art club because that was what I enjoyed in primary school. That was my favorite thing to do, just create things. Mm -hmm. And and then I went to this uh, Chinese orchestra exhibition and I was like, whoa, this music is totally out of this world. Like, I love it. And I wanted to be a percussionist because I think they're so cool. Right. Running around, hitting stuff and making lots of uh, loud noises, mm. you know, that was very attractive in my mind. Okay. So I, I, you know, filled in my application and said, like, I want to join CO, first choice, second choice and third choice, which is actually something that still shocks me. Because mm. <laughs> I was so determined, so determined to be uh, part of the Chinese orchestra. Mm. But eventually I did get in and they were like, okay, tell us what instrument you want to play. So I was like, okay, I want to play percussion. I want to play Gu Zheng because I think it was cool. Mm. And then I think that was the two that I picked. Okay. But because on the form, it also allows you to say, what other instrument do you play? And I wrote piano in there. Mm. Uh, so eventually they decided that, oh, since I play piano, I must know how to read bass clef. So I should just go play a bass clef instrument in the orchestra, which is the double bass or the cello. Okay. And I was given a choice. And I picked the double bass because I thought bigger was cooler. Right. And... Yeah, that was my very, very simplistic mind back then. So from then on, I played bass. I played bass in uh, Daman High CO, mm. and I continued playing bass in the uh, City Chinese Orchestra. And at that same time, I also joined SNYO because uh, Mr. Lee Suhok, who was my bass teacher then, encouraged me to audition. So when I was 16 or 17 was when I was actually um, introduced to Western classical music mm, okay. more formally. I see. And I think I really enjoyed that because I was playing music with other people and, you know, there was a fun banter in your section. Yeah. Like, you know, bass players, they are, we are very cool, right? <laughs> we always love to chit-chat yeah. because we don't really have a lot of notes to play like the violins do. We, you know, poke fun at each other during rehearsals and it mm. was very fun. Mm. So, you know, that was my um, musical life until about... 17 or 18 okay. when I joined uh, the MEP program at the Masik Junior College. Mm. Uh, at that time, I've been playing bass for maybe like four years, three years, and kind of was getting very bored with the repertoire that I was given. We mm. don't really have cool music to play. And uh, because of that, I started writing more transcriptions and arrangements of other people's musics that I enjoyed playing. Okay. And from then on, it started to become more like a uh, composition, like more original composition-y. Mm. Um, and that was kind of when I started writing new, like writing works, you know, compositions for me and my friends or uh, just other people. Right. So during my MEP days was when I had my first composition lesson because it was uh, compulsory for everybody to compose as part of the program. Mm. So I met Mr. Philip Tan uh, and he was like, hey, are you sure you don't want to study composition? So I was like, wait, you mean like I'm actually doing something right and I should consider this? I mean, it's very fun and I really enjoyed it, but I never ever thought that 
um, that could even be you know something I did. Mm. So with that encouragement, um, I applied to the Yong Suto composition track mm. um, because I you know there was an option and I did it yeah. and I knew that I wanted to be a musician. Like I was, I was really absolutely terrible at everything else uh, because I actually spent most days in my JC days, just in the music room and I pontang all lectures and everything <laughs> else. Like I was an absolutely terrible student okay. other than for music, right, um, right. but it made me really, really happy. And I learned a lot mm. um, catching up with a lot of my peers who had like better starts, I say in music. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of how I got into like composing and I really, really enjoyed it. So, you know, just to lengthen the amount of time that I could compose without any stress, yeah. I got scholarship after scholarship and basically stayed in school writing music and composing and learning for the next, oh man, how many years? 12 years? Nice. 12 years. So Great yeah, stuff. a bachelor's degree, a master's degree and a PhD. So, you know, mm. yeah, it was very, very fun for me to just like do what I wanted to do for as long as I managed to do it. So it's a very, very huge privilege. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, was there any particular reason that you decided that the next step forward after YST was to move to uh, the US? And was there like really uh, a desire or a plan to try to have a career uh, over in the US? Yeah. So I think the moving to the US was just serendipitous. Like, uh, I was awarded a scholarship and that, you know, allowed me to go to the US because if I weren't awarded the scholarship, then I wouldn't be able to afford going to the US. Mm. So I think then it was just like a, another two more years of me being able to write music and enjoy life and, you know, maybe explore a different part of the world. Mm. So that was that. And, um, you know, after the two years, I realized that there was actually a lot more about learning about composing and new music and, you know, society and culture in the US that I was not done learning about. Right. So then I continued applying for another degree so that I could, you know, continue learning and, composing music mm. and I was given another scholarship with a very generous stipend right. so I did that and I think during my PhD years was when I realized that actually being a musician was a lot more than I expected it was mm. because when I was a master's student a bachelor's student I thought I could just write music and you know things would fall in place and I have a job and stuff like that mm. uh, you know life would fall into place then when you're in graduate school with uh, very brilliant people all over around you and realizing that, hey, actually, you know, a, a small percentage of everyone around me actually gets a job. Mm. And it's not because they're not good, they're excellent. Uh, but, you know, it's just the reality of the world out there yeah. that you realize that actually you cannot just be a composer. Mm. And then I realized, actually, it's okay for me because I am not only just a composer, even though on paper, it seems like I am, yeah. right? So I started to explore a lot more things during my years in Boston when I was studying at Brandeis. Mm. Like I started uh, concert series, I managed many ensembles, I was a gig bassist, um, I taught at 
four or five different schools in the Boston area as an adjunct mm. uh, at university level at Harvard at MIT at high school level at Walnut Hill nice. School for the Arts like I dabbled in everything that I could have dabbled in mm. so that I know you know what it's like actually being a hustling musician out in the world yeah and I think because of all these experiences it actually made Getting a job like as a professor, maybe, uh, or rather, it made me a better candidate for a job as a professor because um, you have some sort of a worldview of what the uh, community and the the scene is like as a musician because you're eventually supposed to educate, right? Mm. So, I yeah, I think all these things help me decide which route to go for and yeah I was very very lucky to be able to land a position before I graduated so mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you can't see me because there's no video as we're doing this recording but I'm just like nodding <laughs> profusely when you're speaking uh, because yeah absolutely I think you know uh, with all the work that you've done uh, during your time in Boston for sure uh, apart from you know just having this really uh, good uh, track record and a good CV it's also the actual act of doing it right that you understand what right. are the possibilities and what are the challenges and for sure you've learned many things when you're organizing concert series for uh, different people or different groups and, and things like that and that definitely adds uh, on to uh, these extra elements that separate you from the rest of the other candidates and I think the the real worry is not that we are not good enough as musicians. I think the real worry is that we are blending so much that we become invisible. Because once we become invisible, we run into a lot of problems, right? It seems mm -hmm. like we are doing all these yeah. things, but nobody is able to see it or nobody knows that we are actually here. And yeah, and then that can yeah, really take a toll. Right. I mean, I think that's a very interesting outlook, right? Like, mm -hmm do you not exist if what you're doing is not recognized? I think it's one of those things, right? It's like, like if the tree falls and you don't hear it, did the tree actually fall? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? And yeah. I think that it's very interesting because I've been thinking about this uh, lately mm. with, you know, like all the work that I do, I document it, I would say, as best as I can on social media mm. so that I'm doing work and other people can learn about the work that I do so that it helps them too. Yeah. Right? It's something I talk to my students a lot about. Like you can do the best work and if nobody can find you on the internet and nobody knows what you're doing, then did you do anything? Mm. Exactly. And I think this is not really uh, something that people in the past had to worry about in the same way as we have to right now. Mm. So I think this is one of these like 21st century things that I'm just, you know, trying to wade through mm. and in hopes uh, uh, of finding some way out of it so that I can teach my students what it is like out here in uh, the 20, 21st century world. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's this thing, I think, called like polite persistence, I think, uh, which means that you are constantly showing up and you're putting your work out there, but you're not sort of like jamming it into other people's faces saying that, look, look, I, I've done this, but it's just like, it's here. If you're interested, uh, you can have a look. If you're not, and that's really okay right? That, mm -hmm. yeah, you're not trying to, to force anybody to subscribe to what you're doing and, and things like that. But you give them this sort of avenue that in this case, that if they are interested in what you're doing or they find that it's interesting, they can like go down this sort of like uh, 
uh, rabbit hole online to, mm-hmm. to find out like this is actually the work that you've been doing. Right. Yeah, yeah I think that's very important. Mm. And I also think, uh, you know, I would say musicology in future would be changing quite a bit mm. because now we have, like, for example, this podcast that we're recording right now, mm. like this could be someone's uh, source for a research mm. project, right? Yeah. And I think it's so important that uh, we document things in 21st century ways, like podcasts, mm. like video representations of our work, mm. um, like tweets. I mean, it sounds so frivolous, but I think it's very important to consider all these as some way of um, documenting the way we live now. Yeah. yeah. Like in, in actually in a very similar way as composing, mm. right? I think of composing as a, a dear diary kind of a entry (laughs) right like every piece is like okay this piece i wrote in march to uh july and therefore this piece is like a documentation of my life from march to july Mm. and if i wrote the same piece in a different time it will be a very different piece yeah so definitely yeah Mm. yeah so you know uh now we we go a little bit into your compositional process so you know you have a long list of work under your name and some of these ensembles or the instrument combination that you wrote for is not very conventional. So uh, when you first started getting, uh, say, a commission or an engagement to write for unconventional instrumentation, what was your mm-hmm. kind of research and thought process? Because there's no sort of like um, uh, basics uh, or you don't really know what it sounds like when it comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think usually I try to push myself to do uh, projects that I think are interesting. And generally that means projects that allow me to work with very specific groups of musicians Mm. rather than uh, thinking about, you know, a rather generic thing like a string quartet or orchestra or something like that. Like I prefer working with small groups of people because I want to understand how they play and what they play more intimately. Mm. And I think I can do that better in uh, smaller chamber groups. Mm. So it really works well for COVID because you know we cannot get together in large groups anyway, right? Yeah. So the small group commissions have been uh, very exciting for me. Mm. So um, when, when I get a project like this, uh, the first thing I do is research. Mm. So I would dig into the inst- instrument, the interesting instrument, and also the performer. So believe it or not, like I tried, I tried to find all the stuff that Cole has done and you guys <laughs> have individually done right. so that I could get a sense of who you are. And obviously I snoop around your social medias to see what you like to do and stuff like that as well. Mm. Uh, you know, just as part of my research uh, process into the composition. Mm. So I think that's the most important thing. And then the other thing I do that I encourage students to do is to make a dictionary for yourself for each instrument slash player that you write for, Mm. right? So, um, for example, you know, for you, I would have, I mean, I have like, okay, this is like the lowest note, the highest note, this sounds good here, this doesn't sound good here, Um, you know, quarter tones are not super easy, but, you know, (laughs) you try... Yeah, yeah. And, and like, like, what are the cool sounds that I can get from your instrument? Like, um, 
you know, I message you about all the different flutter tongue airy sounds and stuff like that. Mm. Like all those go into a page on my book that says cool things that uh, Vincent does oh. and the euphonium <laughs> can do. Okay. And because of that, like I have like different pages for different instruments and then it's like uh, I have my palette of uh, paint. Mm. So then once I got that, I start to put the paint and the ideas together, like combining different kinds of sounds from one instrument with another and just basically just trying to imagine what that sounds like. Mm. And it's no different from actually painting because if you know red and yellow puts together orange, then you also know that uh, maybe flutter tongue on trombone goes very well with uh, airy sounds on euphonium. Right. And that's kind of what the end of the cold piece is, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. We are, yeah. We are looking forward. To, yeah, we're rehearsing tonight. So we are looking forward to that. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. 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 Mm, okay. So so that's kind of how I approach it uh, sonically. And then the everything else is not too different. You know, thinking about pacing, thinking about melody, thinking about harmony, thinking about uh, time, how time moves in a piece. Mm. Yeah. Right. So uh, would you say that, you know, your your process since um, from the beginning to now has more or less been kept to what, what you've just mentioned, that you've constantly sort of like uh, tried to really understand the person and the group that you're writing for? Yeah, I yeah. think so. I mean, it has, it has definitely, uh, you know, changed over the years. It's only rather recently that I started writing for very specific people. Mm. Uh, and previously, you know, when you're in school, you just like write a piece, you yeah. know, for, I don't know, viola. And then you go find the violist. Mm. But yeah. I think for me, I think it works better to know the people I'm writing for so that uh, I can include part of them into the piece. So that is actually like uh, special, not just a generic piece for any euphonium player, mm. but really a piece for the people who commissioned it and the people I'm working with. Right. Right. Okay. And so now, you know, how do you decide whether, whether a piece is um, complete or ready to be, say, published or sent over? Um, is there like, I mean, for performance, it's a lot more straightforward because when we decide that uh, something is ready, is basically just through uh, listening to perhaps our own uh, practice recordings and things like that or throughout rehearsals. So uh, as a composer... Mm -hmm. How do you uh, kind of judge that? I think there are many different answers for myself even. Mm. So I think the first judge is that, is there a deadline? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's a deadline, then the deadline is the, the first cut, right? So if, you know, for example, I have a deadline November the 1st, then my ideas usually have to be planned so that the piece is in a presentable state at on November the 1st and then I'll send it out and it'll be right the the piece as of November the 1st mm. and a lot of my pieces uh to be completely honest with you have undergone changes after the first second third performances mm. um because I think sometimes you know you really have to listen to the piece before you decide that it's done like the time of the deadline it is done at that time. Mm. But obviously, not all the time it will be exactly as you had imagined. Yeah. So I am the kind that will be happy to make edits after the premiere or even after the second performance so that it resembles more of what I was imagining 
when I was, you know, conceiving and writing the piece. Mm, mm. So I I, I'm not shy to say that I make edits all the time and it's still happening to pieces even from like, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Okay. That's that's interesting. How do you identify these pieces? Is it like occasionally you go and listen back to a recording again or is it a new performance of the uh, particular work that you've written a long time ago? And if somebody mm-hmm. sends you their performance and then you listen to it and then you feel like, oh, maybe I could tweak a couple of things here. Yeah, I would say it's usually before or after performance. Mm. So if it's after performance, uh, usually it's because like I know there will be many performances coming uh, so that I have to you know fix everything before the next people play it. And for pieces that I say are less performed, then generally before a new performance, I will look up everything and see if there's anything I need to, you know, change or edit or see if I made silly mistakes in the previous draft before I send it. So yeah, it's always, I would say, uh, performance uh, related Mm. that I look back on a piece and see if there's anything that can be made better. I see. Okay. Yeah. So now, you know, as a, a college professor uh, or even as an adjunct um, before that, you have uh, interacted with many students, you have taught many students. Um, in terms of composition, are there students that would just turn up to the lessons and pitch like a concept to you, but actually don't show you any physical work? And mm-hmm. yeah, what, how do you like, how do you respond to that? And is it uh, much better that they at least turn up with something written, although the idea might not be super strong? Yeah, I think, uh, yes, I have had both experiences. I have students who are extremely prolific and uh, come into lessons every week with so much material that we cannot even get through most of it. Mm. And I've also had students who are, um, you know, not very prolific, but work a lot in their head, Mm. like always conceptualizing something, but, you know, uh, and I've also had students who are none of that, just like come to lesson, uh, and just enjoy a chat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I am perfectly all right with all three scenarios, mm. as long as any of these scenarios are not the dominant scenario. Because I think composition, and maybe in other lessons as well, but maybe less so, composition is about you know developing you as a human being, as a creative human being, so that you can go out there and write works that are meaningful and mean something to you and your community. So that's the first thing. Mm. Uh, composition is also about training you to actually be a, a you know, technically proficient composer. So there's two parts of the composition. First is the creating the human being, uh, the creator, mm. and then you know teaching the techniques so that the creator can actually be good at creating. So I see those two as uh, both part of my job. I see. So... Uh, yeah, for the students who are busy conceptualizing, uh, I think it's fine to just talk through what they're thinking about because that is composing. Mm. Like composing in your head, even when there's nothing written down on paper, is composing. Mm. And I do that too. Actually, I was really bad at bringing something to lesson every week because that was not usually how I, um, I guess, compose. Mm. Like my composition process is in three parts. And at any one time, I usually have uh, three different pieces I'm working on. 
one that I'm in the pre-composition, you know, sketching, drafting, researching stage, mm. one that I'm actually actively composing, and one that is the done with the composing part, but just making sure the notation and the typesetting, everything looks good. I see. So there's three different parts. And, and I understand uh, because of my, I guess, con- very like, partitioned uh, process, creative process that I understand some students need time to just think about what they're doing before they do it. Mm, Okay. And other students just need time to actually figure out who they are and what they're interested in before they actually compose. So I think, you know, all of these are good scenarios and, and fine scenarios to work with as long as it's a combination of everything and not uh, just one thing for the entire semester. Mm, right. Right. Okay. So are there for younger students who let's say just uh, maybe first year of undergraduate or maybe some high school students, do you have any like, do you put them through some kind of like uh, exercises or regimes to kind of know their uh, strengths and weaknesses in terms of their compositions or uh, are there any systems that you sort of have like in place for them to go through at the slightly younger um, part of their or earlier part of their studies? You know, funny that you ask because uh, I'm the only person in my university that teaches the like first year composition majors. Okay. So in my school, um, the first years all take a group composition class. Okay. And that's the class that I teach and it's my favorite class to teach because I feel that I have been given this blank slate for everybody and it's a blank slate that is for me and a blank slate for them as well because they all come in thinking they want to be a composer Mm. and nobody really knows what this means uh, when they first come in. Everybody has a different idea what a composer is. Mm. Like I have students who come in and they're like, I want to be a film composer. I have students who come in and are like, I want to be the next Philippe Leroux (laughs) And, and so on. So, you know, it's a very varied class in that the students I have are very, very different from one another. Mm. Uh, And it has to be a class of mutual learning. So the way I think of this first year uh, teaching composition is that I should throw at my students as much as possible and push them in ways they have never, ever, ever thought they could be pushed. Right. So that first year, um, we actually have about eight different projects that everybody has to do, you know, one thing based on the same guidelines. Mm. And each project pushes you in a different direction. And my projects constantly change because I'm not the kind of person that can do the same thing over and over and over again and, you know, feel right. like it's interesting. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, here, here are some things that I, I make my students do. Mm. In that first year, uh, they have to learn the basics of writing or or, of of composing. So we do projects based on separate elements of music. So for example, there will be a melody project where you're supposed to, you know, learn how to develop motives and stuff like that. There will be a rhythm project. Uh, There will be a harmony project. There will be a timbre project, the the usual, you know, techniques class. Mm. But inside of that, uh, in that first year, my students will perform their other classmates' music oh. on their instrument. Okay. My students will sing. My mm. students will uh, collaborate with an artist from a different, uh, you know, 
genre. So I have had them collaborate with filmmakers. I've had them collaborate with choreographers, uh, painters. I bring them to art class sometimes so that they know that creating is not a very... A creating is a process that can be done in many different ways. And when you go to art class and see how artists create, you actually maybe steal some ideas from them. Mm. So, you know, that first year is one that is very exploratory. Like we do all sorts of things. Uh, another thing that we I make sure that students do uh, is also to work with technology. Right. Um, Another thing I make them do is to actually write proposals. Nobody teaches composers to write proposals when I was in school. Mm. But I think it's so important that they write proposals because a lot of these call for scores uh, these days are actually call for proposals. Mm. And they experience being on the proposal panel at themselves as well because, well, there's no better way to learn than to be on the opposite end of things. Yeah. So they send me all their proposals and then I blanko out their names and send it back to them and say, you know, these are the proposals. Which one do you think is the best? And that's, you know, really the best way to learn. Mm. So, yeah, uh, we also, you know, listen to all sorts of different musics. And for example, next year, making my students compose with uh, in the style of a hip hop artist, because why not? Yeah. Okay. Right. So, yeah. so I think that first year is really one that is mostly exploratory, and I want them to wear as many different hats as possible. Mm. Like they even have to organize their own concerts, put you know, book their own venues, find their own musicians. All these things that uh, a composer has to do, but nobody tells you about it in composition lesson. Mm. So in a class setting, is easier to do because everybody has the same, I guess, project and goal. Right. And it, when you're tasked as a class to put together your own concert, you also learn other things like uh, you know, div divvying up roles. Um, or working together as a group, like all these different things. So yeah, I think that first year as a composition major really is uh, a taste of being a holistic musician yeah. first. Yeah, so you straight yeah. away you jump into the deep end, right? Have a taste of what, what it's really all about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, when you talk about like collaborations with uh, filmmakers, choreographers and stuff like that, are this, uh, do the uh, students have to look for these people themselves or do you help them or does the school have some sort of um, uh, affiliation or do they have a department that's also uh, doing that yeah so i've been doing this for about four years now every semester so maybe like six seven different times i had to find uh people to work with uh so yeah you know interdisciplinary collaboration is a very important part of my class because i think it's like like i said before i think it's very interesting to see how other creative artists do it mm. right so uh we don't have a thing necessarily uh program in school to help us do these things so usually i email other professors and see if they're interested in bringing the classes together mm. and so far it's been you know okay i mean a lot of times people don't respond but the people who respond uh, respond very positively right so yeah in my class we've worked with uh, filmmakers we've worked with artists we've worked with dancers we've even worked with like uh, the museum itself like you know art I guess uh, curators mm. so yeah it's, it's interesting just to put you put students in different positions where they have to execute their creativity in a slightly different way mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. mostly is I I do it lah because they are first years and you don't want them to be like, oh, you need to go find <laughs> someone else to work with, and yeah. they're like, but I'm just here for one semester. Who do I know? I don't know anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's mostly up to me. <laughs> yeah. So that was what I was thinking as well. Like, wow, if they have to like go and speak to people, that would be like pretty tough. Yeah. It would be quite difficult for them to like you know get hold of these people or just to mm-hmm. yeah get a response from them right. Because we know it yeah. can be quite difficult sometimes. Yeah. So right. now uh, the next uh, thing that I want to talk to you about is quite interesting to me because this <laughs> doesn't don't really apply to um, performers and instru- or instrumentalists as much, uh, which is this thing about writer's block. So uh, mm. uh, to you, is writer's block a thing? And have you at any point in your career believe that it was a thing or did you like suffer from it so yeah what are your thoughts on this yeah i think uh yeah i think writer's block is definitely a thing and i've also experienced it in uh my life before mm. but i think it's increasingly becoming less so mm. i think part of it was um you want to be so perfect that you're afraid to try something new yeah and I think I was like that when I was younger. Like I had the idea that every single piece I wanted to create had to be the masterpiece. Mm. But over the years, I kind of ditched that idea because I feel like you don't really learn anything sitting there and pondering uh, or not, not don't learn anything. You don't learn as much. Um, and I think this you know goes back to the previous question you had, right? Like what if students came in with nothing or came in with just ideas or came in with actual music written? Mm-hmm. I think there is something valuable to all of that. So with writer's block, um, I, I found it easy to just get over writer's block by doing because mm-hmm. I found out that you know everything that you do, whether it's not doing anything at all or um, thinking about doing something or actually doing something, all of that are very valuable processes. Mm. So once you understand that, then you realize that actually there's no such thing as writer's block. Writer's block is, um, you know, for many people not writing down something. Mm. But if you think of writer's block as, or, or rather if you think of everything that you do, as being meaningful, then there's no such thing as writer's block anymore. Even mm. if you're not doing anything, it's, you're still learning something, I think. Yeah, yeah, So definitely. because of that, then I don't feel like it's writer's block. So do I believe in writer's block? Yes, in the traditional sense. Mm. But uh, I also, in, in the same way, I don't believe in writer's block because I do believe that we are con- constantly learning no matter what we do. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think it's uh, it's this idea that everything that we touches need to turn to gold that stops us mm-hmm. from actually doing anything because you feel like, um, I mean, the the fact is like with all of us, it's never a nice feeling to tell yourself that you know whatever you're writing is not good, you know. Uh, right. As much as sometimes uh, we have to receive criticisms to improve, um, but it's not. Uh, we we tend to not enjoy it as much, right? We don't go around asking for criticisms uh, openly mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, this idea of like, yeah, I think, you know, we we set such a high bar for ourselves and then we tend to shy away from actually doing the work because we're afraid that it's not good enough or when we put it out there, people won't like it and all this kind of stuff. 
Yeah. So I I hear yeah. uh, I heard this saying that like you know the reason why you don't have a good idea is that you don't have enough bad ideas. No, absolutely true. Yeah. Really, really, really right. true. Yeah, I, I totally believe that you know working out something, working through something is a valuable process, no matter what the product is.、Mm. Right. The process is. To me, more important than the product.、And、I think this is a kind of men- mentality shift. After I became slightly older, like when I was in my twenties, I was so I would say scared to do things differently because I felt like I needed to prove myself、uh, in the traditional way.、Mm. But when I got older, I just kind of like I didn't really care anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to do things that I wanted to do because you know you have a finite amount of time on this earth,、mm. earth, and if you just keep pushing away the things that you personally want to do to prove to others、uh, that you can do whatever they think that you should be doing, then、yeah. you're just wasting your own life away.、Yeah. So once you come to that realization, I think uh, that um, you have a finite existence on this place and time,、mm. and you should. Start doing what you actually want to do, then you don't really care too much about the expectations others place on you. For sure, absolutely, yeah, Compl- yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. And you know, at the end of the day, I think、um, we have to somewhat, ha- somehow, we need to have this mentality that at the end of the day, maybe external sources don't really care what you're doing. So, what is more important is that we do something that we are truly passionate about, that we have interest in. And like it's an accurate representation of ourselves. That is way more important than trying to put out things that oh,、uh, people are going to like or like please people and stuff like that. Yeah. So this idea、yeah. of like staying true to yourself is, I think, super duper important. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as artists and musicians, it is such a privilege to be able to explore that part of us. Right, like so many, pe- I feel so many people say they have things they want to do, but because of the like daily grind or or whatever other reason,、mm. um, don't really get to it. And for artists and musicians, I feel like this is what we do every day, or at least this is how I feel that、like、I do this every day, and I feel so blessed and privileged to be able to just do what I want to do and dream my dreams.、Mm. So, yeah. Yeah,、definitely. I don't know if you feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think like you know, uh, for uh, because we always surround ourselves with musicians, right? So this idea of um creation and creating something and putting our work out there doesn't seem like something that is um very special or very um out of the norm. But I believe that in the in the wider world, not many people have this opportunity to get their hands into creating something. A lot of times, their work or or their day job, uh,、mm. make them like some some form of a cog in a machine or in a or in a <laughs> in a big corporation that you're you're actually just churning out work, but none of it is、uh, created by yourself. If you、yeah. know what I mean, yeah. So I think like this、uh, ability to be able to, or、um, this opportunity to be able to be creating something,、uh, definitely is、um, a privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, totally well said.、Uh, so now, la- last question for you, okay? And、mm-hmm. uh, of course, we you've already kind of mentioned about how you see、uh, the relationship. Is like between、uh, composers and performers, and that you tend to not only 
think of writing a generic piece, but you also think about writing for a particular performer. So let's just talk a little bit about your experiences so far. Uh, are there any like particularly good ones that stick out and are there some bad ones that yeah you would like to mention as well? <laughs> uh, I would say I think, you know, it's very difficult for me to find an example of a bad one because I'm the kind of person that doesn't really look at something and can point out something bad. Mm. Like I always am maybe overly positive about things. So I always try to find the positive experience out of maybe something that might not be as uh, good in, in other people's eyes. Right, right. So I, I cannot actually think of like a bad experience, okay. but I can think of many, many, many good experiences. Mm. And I think a lot of it um, was, you know, through this COVID experience, like, um, these days, we're all on the computer. We're all on Zoom all day. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the one thing that I found uh, excellent about that is that everybody is more than happy to Zoom you and um, <laughs> work out something with you on your piece. Yeah. Like it used to be such a foreign idea that we can rehearse over the internet. Mm. But because now this is what we can do and what we kind of have to do yeah. to continue making music. Um, I feel that, you know, the distances don't really matter anymore. Like, mm. for example, I'm working with you uh, as in Cole, mm. you know, and you're in Singapore and I'm in the US. And traditionally, that would be a very, very far distance. Yeah. But in COVID, it's not at all. Mm. And I think because of COVID and our change of mentality of distances, I've actually gotten to work a lot more with the uh, Singaporean um, and, you know, I guess musicians from all over the world rather than those who are just limited to uh, being close to me geographically. Right. So, yeah, so a lot of these memorable experiences working with uh, musicians actually came up all on Zoom, like very, very recently. I see. Like, so, so it, yeah, makes me very heartened to think that there is so much good that comes out of COVID, mm. even though people always say like, ah, you know, it's so much better if we do it live and stuff like that. Yes, it is better, mm. but there are other benefits to doing things on the internet as well. Yeah. Right? Definitely. So, okay, what have you got uh, lined up apart from your, your, uh, the huge opera that you're working on? What, what do you have lined up for yourself over the next couple of months or the next year or so? Mm. Okay, so um, I have several things lined up, uh, composing-wise and, and not. Mm. Right? So uh, in a month, we're going to try to record... Uh, my saxophone album and this has been postponed three times because of COVID so this is the fourth try mm. and I'm very confident that we will be able to do it before the end of the year right. so that is coming up in 2021 um, and the album's name is going to be called Wordplay so keep a lookout for that mm. uh, coming probably in the summer next year Okay. Um, and then other composing work so I am working on a piece for Baroque Flute Mm -hmm. uh, for Emmy Ferguson, who is a Baroque flutist and principal flute of the Hannah Haydn Society. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be a traditional, just like performance of a piece. We're going to actually uh, 
like really lean into the digital presentation format of it and even make it a piece that maybe cannot even be performed live uh, oh. in, in a concert hall. Okay. So that's coming up and several other uh, pieces. So I'm writing a piece for my friend Kurt Rohde mm. uh, for Viola Electronics. And I'm also writing a piece or two pieces rather uh, for saxophone duo. So the first duo will be for Vex Duo. Mm. It is a saxophone consortium that is actually still open. So if you're a saxophonist uh, who wants to join the consortium, go check it out on my website. Yeah. Uh, but that one will be for two alto or soprano so, uh, saxophones and I'm also working on another saxophone uh, duo which is for Ogni Suono for their 10th anniversary okay. and that will be for tenor and baritone saxophone so two separate saxophone quartet, uh, saxophone duos nice and um and I guess a big one that we're currently working on right now is uh, co-composing a piece with Caulfield. He's a uh, hip-hop artist. Mm -hmm. And we're going to present this uh, work that we're co-composing for Wind Band at uh, CBDNA when CBDNA can come back. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, I see. Yeah, so quite a few things up in uh, the docket for composing, which is rather normal for me. Mm. Um but yeah, all very exciting works to, you know, work with. Yeah, indeed. They, are, they, they all sound super cool, very different from each other. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perhaps other than the your affinity with the saxophone, that all, all of it sounds uh, yeah, very exciting and very different. Um, yeah, so we definitely uh, will keep an eye out for all these projects. And yeah, yeah. Uh, time flies, Emily. Uh, we have to unfortunately <laughs> wrap this conversation up. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been a super lovely chat with you and uh, great to hear some of your perspective and a perspective from a composer when it comes to uh, music education and our creative processes. Yeah, definitely. It was such a wonderful time chatting. It doesn't even feel like uh, time has passed really because we were just like talking yeah, to each other like we would normally so <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so yeah uh, thank you once again uh, for coming on to the show Emily and uh, for all of you who are listening thank you so much for staying with us throughout the episode and most importantly thank you for your attention it is very much appreciated and with that we will sign off on this episode of You Play A What You have been listening to You Play A What hosted by Vincent Tan if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time. Thank you.